When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, March 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, as the Senate prepares for a vote, state lawmakers question a bill that would allow schools to arm teachers. Then we'll hear reactions from Mississippians on retailers removing certain guns from sale and raising age restrictions, making it harder to buy guns. As Women's History Month begins today, hundreds of composers and musicians will descend on the campus of Mississippi University for Women to showcase music composed, taught, and performed by women. We'll get the details. And in our book club, a conversation with a Mississippi teenager on her book of short stories for youth in today's world. Meet Lauren Hill. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Mississippi bill that would give all schools the option of arming staff is headed to a vote by the full Senate. MPB's Desiree Frazier reports. It was Mississippi House Bill 1083 that led to a highly publicized debate in the chamber earlier this month. A representative displayed his gun to make a point about his opposition to the measure. The bill would allow people with an enhanced firearm license to carry guns on public property. The bill passed the House. The Senate's Judiciary A Committee added an amendment to give schools the option of arming staff. Republican Senator Briggs Hobson chairs the committee. Private schools and uh, public schools and our institutions of higher learning and community colleges, their governing bodies would determine if they even want to do this. So this is not a requirement by any means. Uh, It leaves the discretion up to the local folks. The bill lists requirements, which includes completing a firearms course through a certified school safety training program approved by the Mississippi Department of Public Safety. Staff would have to have a gun permit, and their names would be provided to administrators and law enforcement. Democratic Senator Juan Barnett of Forest County is on the committee. He's concerned about accidental shootings. Maybe there's a fight that breaks out at school or something, and that pistol falls out, hits the floor, goes off, kills a child who just happened to be walking down the hallway, goes through a wall, kills an innocent child. House Republican Gary Chisholm of Columbus is one of the authors of the measure. He supports the change. A lot of teachers wouldn't even want that. It allows the board to pick some. Maybe the administrators, maybe the coaches. They don't even have to have it publicized who's got it. 
Parents for Public Schools in Cleveland say they don't support the bill. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. As the state decides how it will handle guns in the classroom, the rift between corporate America and the gun lobby is growing. Retail heavyweights Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods have taken steps to restrict gun sales. That follows moves by several other major corporations, including MetLife, Hertz, and Delta Airlines, that have cut ties with the National Rifle Association following the February 14th shooting deaths of 17 people at a Florida high school. In a statement released yesterday, Dick's Sporting Goods says they'll no longer sell guns to people under age 21. The store will also dis- continue selling high-capacity magazines. All 35 affiliate stores are now removing assault-style weapons, an action the company took after the Sandy Hook massacre. Butch Tenen is a customer. It's wrong to tell me what I can and can't buy wherever I want to buy it at. You know, if they don't want mine and my, and my brother veteran's money, well, we won't give it to them. We'll take it somewhere else. It's, that's really easy to take care of. So with them changing, like, the age limit, do you think it's a matter of age um, with with just the use of firearms that makes the difference? No, it's not, because they're trying to make their own rules, and if they want to do that, that's fine. But, like I said, we as Americans don't have to support it, because when it comes to maturity, that is up to the parents. If the parents aren't raising the children the way they're supposed to, the children are going to act any kind of way they want to. I know my son is fixing to turn 11 years old, and he's probably safer and can shoot better than I can. And I spent five and a half years in the military, and I practice and I, I carry. But like I said, he's he, he's more aware sometimes of muzzle awareness than I am when I get in a hurry. So it's a matter of how the parents raise their children. Dick's customer, Butch Tenen. Lamar Brunson is also a customer and former Dick's employee. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood mental illness is a bigger problem. Uh, I mean, it doesn't bother me at all. There's plenty of places I can go buy other farms if I need one. Um, but I think it might make people, some people feel better, but it's not going to solve the issue. The issue is that people have mental illness and they need help. So, you know, that's, that's where the problem's at. Get help to the people that want to go out and do these things. What do you think that means for Dicks in Mississippi to discontinue selling, you know, firearms for certain ages or just certain kinds of firearms? I actually worked here back in 2012 during the Sandy Hook shooting. Uh, they took all the ARs off the shelves. I don't know if they'll lose people's business as a whole, but obviously they'll go buy firearms somewhere else. There's plenty of places in Mississippi to go buy firearms. Former Dicks employee Lamar Brunson. In a statement also released yesterday, Walmart officials say they're raising the age restriction for purchase of firearms and ammunition to 21 years of age. Coming up, details on the event bringing hundreds of composers and musicians to the campus of the Mississippi University for Women. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Ophira Eisenberg, host of NPR's Ask Me Another. Do you have an extra car that you wash more than most people go to the dentist? Well, save some time and some water and donate it to us. Think about it. Rather than it sitting there taking up space, your extra car could be making public radio. And when you donate it here, you may also qualify for a tax deduction. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. As a single mom, MPB's Education Parent Academy gave my life direction. I got a job, helped my sons excel in school, and I'm a better mom. That's my MPB story. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The opioid crisis gripping the nation is also impacting lives in Mississippi. The Magnolia State ranks fifth in opioid prescriptions, according to an investigation by the Associated Press. The third installment of the Southern Remedy three-part series titled Hooked is taking a deep dive into the issue. Two of the show's featured experts spoke with MPB's Desiree Frazier. Claude Brunson is vice president of the State Board of Medical Licensure. Dr. Ike Ariadar is director of the Penn Fellowship Program at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Brunson says the governor's task force has laid out some plans to address the issue. On the uh, governor's opioid and heroin task force, uh, what we did and what the governor wanted to do was to bring together all the stakeholders that impacted in some sort of way the the opioid and heroin epidemic that's going on in our state and throughout the country. It was mainly three subdivisions of that task force. There was one that dealt with the medical providers and what do we need to do with that community to make sure that we were appropriately and safely prescribing opioids to treat our patients' um, acute and chronic pain. There was also a a section uh, of the task force that looked at uh, how do we treat the folks who are now out there addicted to have some resources for them to be able to get to it to actually address their addiction and get them past that. And then the third uh, division of that task force was law enforcement, mainly to look at uh, who's... uh, dumping these illegal drugs in our community that are very deadly with some of the, the combinations that are that are being dumped into our communities. How do you deal with that and get those folks off of the street and out of the community and, and curb some of those deaths? We came out with recommendations that we presented to the governor. But the other thing for that is that we wanted to take those recommendations and certainly depart from the medical section of it and get it out to our providers who are actually prescribing these drugs. That involved the Mississippi Board of Medical Licensure, the Board of Pharmacy, the uh, Mississippi Dental Association, and the Board of Nursing. The idea would be that we would all agree on appropriate, safe prescribing of opiates, and we would standardize the process. And the Board of Medical Licensure, we have taken up that issue. We want to make sure that we have our physicians appropriately treating pain, but not creating new addicts. Um, The second part of that is those folks who are addicted is where do you send them? How do we go about trying to help them get past their their addiction? And then the third part is to recognize folks who may be uh, prescribing inappropriately so that we can address those issues. And if we have anybody out there that is egregious about it, then we'll investigate that and we'll make sure that that all of our providers are appropriately uh, prescribing medications uh, to their patients. Okay, so Dr. Arietto, you're a pain specialist? Yes, I am. This is an issue that doctors with the Medical Licensure Board were concern- are very concerned about, how to manage pain and uh, people who have chronic pain. So how are you going to deal with the limitations placed on you for prescribing opioids? We do have a crisis regarding the use of opioids. And a lot of the problem in the society regarding these opioids are somehow related to some prescription drug. So at this point in time, we as providers, we need to be patient-centered. We need to take care of our patient. We need to look at alternatives to these agents based on the current science that's available. We need to look at other medicines that we can use in place of opioids. 
for instance, physical therapy. If you don't use it, you lose it. It's something we need to talk to our patient about. For instance, people talk about things like acupuncture. People talk about things like yoga. People talk about things like stress management. People talk about like weight loss. You know, in Mississippi, we have a lot of weight problem. And the more weight you put on this, let's say, our hip or our knee, the more problems we're going to have. So we need to take a more comprehensive approach to taking care of our patient. Do you prescribe opioids? Of course, if it is needed, yes. Do you find that they do the job that you want them to do? This is the thing about opioids. There's a place for them, but they work in the brain and the spinal cord. So they are like a last resort. There are some patients who benefit from such treatment, but it is not for everybody. And we also have to look at opioids as medicines that have heaven and hell together. Heaven, when you use them for the right purpose. Hell, because of the possible side effects that they can create. So it is a balancing act. And every time we prescribe that medicine, we need to think in terms of that heaven and hell. What treatment options are there for people? How can that be addressed, uh, given that a lot of these treatment facilities, the private ones, are expensive? There's a couple of ways that we tried to address that on the governor's uh, task force. One of the recommendations that we did make is that there has to be more funding that goes into these treatment facilities. Um, there is no way that we can deal with um, the epidemic that's going on in this state or anywhere in the country without us having places that we can send these folks to get the treatment that they need. Well, thank you, Dr. Claude Brunson and Dr. Ike Arietto, for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Hooked airs tonight at 7.30 on MPB TV. Women from across the world will descend upon the Mississippi University for Women today. Music lovers, history buffs, and students are preparing for the Music by Women Festival. It's an international event dedicated to celebrating women in music with paper presentations, panel discussions, and free concerts. Julia Mortikova is the event's artistic director and chair of the Department of Music at MUW. She tells us more. So the mission is to highlight and celebrate the contributions of women composers of past and present to classical music, as well as other related music, such as jazz and blues and film music and musical theater. So this is our second annual festival, and it is an international festival. Uh, We have about over 200 scholars and musicians coming from all around the world, including Mexico and Canada and other countries, and all around the United States. Hats off to you because that's an incredible amount of reach into the international community. Thank you so much. Well, that was one of my ideas because I figured what better place to host a festival of music by women than at MUW, which was the first public institution in the country to offer education for women. And I find that if you go to a concert, you're not going to see a lot of women on the program. And there's a lot of discussion online about this where you have major opera companies, major orchestras who go through their entire season without featuring one woman composer on any of the programs. For example, up to today, the Metropolitan Opera has only programmed two composers. So there's a definite lack of presence. And I think one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because not only are there a lot of composers living today composing music, but historically there were so many women. And a lot of them were immensely popular in their lifetime. And somehow history has magically erased them. Does this festival feature 
vocalists as well as instrumentalists? Absolutely. So it's a very, very diverse program, as I mentioned. So there are a vocalist. Uh, last year, we actually had a full opera come with an orchestra. This year, we have a lot of solo uh, voice, duo voice, trio, quartets. We have a full choir coming. So this music that you hear at the concerts performed by these top-notch musicians, it's either music that they themselves submitted or it's music that a composer submitted who said, I have this piece, you know, like a program, and I went out and I found performers for that composer. And so what's happening at this fest, where I have this list of volunteer performers from all around the country who are willing to come here and perform music by women who they don't know, and they're selected through a blind process. When they pick these pieces, they don't know who the composer is. So somebody who's a graduate student or even an undergraduate student has the same consideration as someone who's a faculty member. And then the performers come and we have groups coming. For example, we have one group that's the cornetist is from Texas, the violinist is from Pennsylvania, and the pianist is from New York City. And one thing that is really important to me is that this music doesn't just happen once a year and then everybody goes home and forgets about it. It's like a ripple effect. So a performer performs a work by a composer. They like the work. They take it on the road. They perform it at their school. They perform it somewhere else. They perform it at a conference. Um, or, you know, a performer hears a work by a composer and comes up to the composer and says, hey, I like your music. Can you write me this piece? So this one event is actually serving as a catalyst to spread this music internationally. And I think that's what's important. Many concerts, Thursday morning, Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening, and the same for Friday and Saturday. But there are also many presentations of papers. Between the concerts, there are concurrent lecture recitals and papers being presented. Um, and these are presentations by scholars as well as performers. So lecture recitals when people present research about a composer or work or style of music, and then they also perform as part of it to give uh, real-life musical examples. And the topics, they cover all kinds of different areas. It's not just uh, Eastern or Western European classical music. We have music from Asia. We have um, a lot of sessions about African-American composers. We have uh, a, a performer who is an indigenous from Canada, and she performs in her own language, Cree. We have film music. Uh, we have jazz. We have blues. We have issues of, of, of gender being uh, sexual orientation being discussed on there. It is such a diverse and interesting thing that I think anyone who's just a history buff would enjoy this conference as well as anyone who likes music because a composer is always in the time period, in the culture, in the society that she's living in. And so all these things affect her work and affect her outlook on the world and affect what we receive as a result. And so everything is always discussed from that point of view. There's always a historical context, there's a political context, there's a social context to everything that you hear in the papers. Julia, is there a place where people can find a list of the concerts, what's being featured? So the website is mew.edu slash musicbywomen. And if you click on the schedule tab, it's the full schedule of every single concert, every single presentation. Julia Mirtakova is the director and founder of the Music by Women Festival, which is this Thursday, Friday, Saturday at the Mississippi University for Women. Again, the concerts, the performances are free to the public. Julia, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Coming up, a conversation with a Mississippi teenager on her book of short stories for youth in today's world. We'll meet author Lauren Hill. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. As a single mom, MPB's Education Parent Academy gave my life direction. I got a job, helped my sons excel in school, and I'm a better mom. That's my MPB story. On the next Fresh Air, comics Nick Kroll and John Mullaney 
They'll host the Independent Spirit Awards on IFC's Saturday night, honoring the year's best independent films. They also do the lead voices in the new Netflix animated comedy series Big Mouth about a group of kids going through puberty, dealing with new sexual urges and considerable embarrassment. Join us. Today at 3 on MPV Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi author Lauren Hill isn't your average 16-year-old. The high school student studies martial arts, takes part in activities at her church, and makes top grades at her school. Still, she finds time to write award-winning literature. Hill has published a book of short stories called Standing Up. Her work tackles some of the challenges today's youth face, as well as the consequences that may result from decision-making. Now working on a novel, the young writer tells us how she got started. I've been writing since I was a little girl. Like, even in third grade, I always used to write these stories, and I'd turn them into the teacher, and they'd tell me how great of a writer I was, but I didn't believe it then. And I, I loved to write, but I never thought that I'd be noticed for it or anything. I've, I just love to express myself through my writing, and I've loved to do it for so long. It's just become so natural to me and everything, so I've been doing it for forever, basically. You're only 16 years old, and you've published your first book. What does that feel like? It is awesome that I keep getting like so much publicity from it, and people keep telling me how great it is. It kind of feels the same, if I'm being honest, but the first time I saw it, when I like actually touched it, it was kind of like, oh, wow, this is actually real. And it, just, it was really like an amazing feeling for me. You have five stories in here altogether, standing up, and four other stories, as, as the book is called. Did you write all of them in anticipation of putting them in one book, or were they written separately during different times? The first story, um, I had written it in like at the end of eighth grade, and when it got recognized, my mom wanted me to basically keep writing and see where it takes me, so she set me up with... Joe Maxwell at the Royal Writers Guild, and we and I started writing, and he would edit with me. So I wrote the next story, and then it basically continued after that. Like I would write, then I'd finish, and I'd maybe take a little break, and then go back to writing. And they all came in that order that's written in the book, I believe. The order is standing up. It's all about faith. Every step of the way, thank you, and from a distance. One of these is a personal memoir. The others are fiction. Yes, ma'am. Which one of the stories is the personal memoir? Um, the personal memoir is the fourth book, which uh, the fourth story, which is thank you. Why is that one included in the book, and the other four are fiction? When I wrote thank you, it was more of like an assignment of, from school, but when. I showed it to my um, editor to see, like, how he thought about it. He was like, you know, I think we could put this in the in the book. And I was like, are you sure? I mean, it's different than the others. It's actually a personal experience, so it's, like, a little different. But he said, it's okay. It's, like, this is really good, and people should be able to see this. Are you writing for other teenagers? It is mostly for teenagers, but I feel like everyone could take something from my writing like I I write 
in the stance of teens so that other teens will understand. But also, if a parent is maybe reading one of the stories, they'll be able to see what's actually going on in their teenagers' lives. So I want everyone to be able to get something from it. But yeah, it's mostly targeted for teens. Do you see your future as being a writer, a professional writer? Well, I feel like writing could be something that I do on the side instead of something major for me because I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I love writing, but I think that it's something that I could like do on the side because a lot of my time would be taken into, well, a lot of your time, a lot of your time would <laughs> yeah. be taken in law school alone. Well, I thank you for sharing. Uh, the book is called Standing Up and Four More Short Stories. The author is Lauren Hill, a 16-year-old 10th grader. So uh, congratulations on this first book, and thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10 o'clock, Season Pass. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.